Hi, and welcome to Deep Dive with Jamie Stein, where we take a deep dive look at all things reality TV, pop culture, and the world at large. I'm an intuitive and an empath, which means I pick up on the thoughts, feelings, and energy percolating in other people and the world around me. I believe there is meaning waiting to be found at every turn, if you're willing to see it. So join me as we dismantle everything from trash TV to high spiritual concepts and learn more about ourselves, each other, and how we're all connected. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Deep Dive with Jamie Stein. I know we're a few weeks out from the completion of this latest season of The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, but I just couldn't help but feel remiss in not touching back down on it for kind of a wrap-up session, given that it was such a chaotic and, at times, baffling season. Certainly a season I feel like no other in Housewives history. And it just was feeling a little bit like a loose dangling thread to me. So I thought, why not invite good friend of the podcast, who you all know and love, Piper Sample, to come join me and maybe just have some concluding thoughts on the season as a whole, now that we've reached the end and can kind of look back and view it as a complete entity with a beginning, middle, and ending and see what we discover. So, hi, Piper. Hi. Good to see you. Thank you. How are you today? I'm good. I'm super happy. It's Friday. I like doing this on Friday. I know. It's nice, right? It's like a segue into the weekend. Exactly. I'm done with work. Well, I actually have a working weekend, but I definitely feel like it's the end of a day and what a fun way to transition into the evening with a little chat with you about Housewives. <laughs> you and I had kind of chatted a little bit prior to this about the reunion. And I know some topics that we just kind of generally touched on were one, Heather Gay and the way she showed up at the reunion and specifically what it means to her to be a friend and to show up as a friend. I know that we were also both very taken by the entire cast's orientation towards Jen Shah and what's going on with her and how they hold that for both her and themselves. And then, of course, I don't think any conversation about the reunion would be complete without touching down on Lisa Barlow. And again, kind of the cast orientation towards her and then also how she responds to that. And I know you mentioned at one point having kind of a very visceral response to some of these topics as you were watching it at the time. So I guess if we were just to dive in, I'm curious as I say all that or even maybe something outside those topics I just mentioned. Yeah, what's sort of been jumping out at you or what stood out the most to you in terms of the reunion and wrapping up the season? Well, those three people that you mentioned definitely were focal. I mean, you know, there's also the whole Meredith arc too that I think plays into the the piece around Lisa Barlow and also Heather. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can even just start with Heather because I don't really know what to think. But my impression so far in both of these seasons has been that she goes through the season in a very particular way where she, you know, kind of tries to cultivate these friendships and be the supportive one, really show up for people. And then at the reunion behaves sort of a very different way. 
So I'm just really aware of the fluctuation, let's just say, between her behaviors. And I'm just, I would love to know what, when you drop into her, like, what's her game? I mean, it's really confusing to me. I will say this, and I feel like actually a lot of this is going on in New Jersey right now, too, with the women towards Jennifer. So first of all, I just want to say I agree with you. It's like Heather orients one way during the season, and then it's almost like all the pent-up rage comes out at the reunion all the yeah all the disown i mean it's not that it wasn't present during the season her resentment but yeah there's a way in which the reunion becomes the vehicle and the vessel for kind of this vindictive viciousness and it really was a situation i felt like lisa barlow could have sat there and said the sky is blue and heather would have found some way to pick it apart or dismantle it it felt quite vicious and, and vice versa. <laughs> yeah. And Whatever Heather said, Lisa would have done this. I mean, I, I want to say they reflect something in each other. That's what I was about to say was everything that Heather was accusing Lisa of. I just sat there and felt like she could be talking about herself right now. I mean, the way that she said, you are so concerned with like, you want to present this nice face to the world when underneath that you are just so angry. And I'm just sitting there like, Heather, do you understand? Look at the way that you're behaving right now. You are literally talking about yourself. And to the degree that she actually later in the reunion starts talking about how Lisa, I came in here wanting to be on your side and wanting to support you. And I'm here for you. And I'm like, here it is. Here is your nice face that you want the world to believe when you're not really taking responsibility for the true rage underneath. So clearly there's something that Lisa is reflecting back to Heather that Heather is deeply uncomfortable with inside herself. Now, having said that, the one thing that did confuse me that I would like to sit with a little bit, and I'm curious about your take on it, was this admission at the end that Heather made, which she didn't make a similar admission last season's reunion, where she basically explained, I came in here thinking, Lisa, you were going to be contrite, like that you would have watched these episodes and that she said, have your hat in your hand. And then when you weren't, I got triggered. And essentially, that's why I've been so angry today, which, you know, as I say that, I'm like, okay, well, at least you're owning you were triggered. You're owning you've been quite angry. It's still a little strange to me because one, I just think there's information there that her so-called intended support of Lisa was conditional on Lisa coming in contrite. So she was ready for Lisa to come in hat in hand and Clearly, there was some investment in that, you know, or else she wouldn't have been so triggered. But I also wonder, I mean, kind of piggybacking that point, or it's in a way making the same point. It's just the degree to which she was so charged in the face of Lisa not being contrite. And even if she's telling the truth that that is the thing that triggered her, there's still this question for me of why is that so triggering to you? And yeah, like if you're being honest about this intention to come in here, being supportive of her, how genuine or authentic was that? And again, just to go back to my original point, like what was it contingent on and why is it contingent on that? So I was just I left feeling a little confused because I I guess I experienced her trying in some way at the end to take some responsibility 
for her part in whatever this was, but it still just felt so convoluted and yeah, not deeply connected to whatever was really going on. And I think the last thing I'll say about it, as I say this, it reminds me of that weird moment where Lisa went over there and they hugged and Heather said something about, I just want to be in the ugly with you. It's like she's trying to navigate this friendship in a way where she can tolerate it, but it still feels like she's avoiding a deeper level of something that then manifests itself in a certain demand that she has on Lisa. And then when Lisa doesn't fulfill that demand, it just makes her angry all over again. Well, as you were talking about that, I I appreciate the framing of it because we've talked about, you know, her connection to being LDS or ex-LDS, you know, like I remember watching the episode where she was holding a service for her father. And it was just her family, like, but not all of her family was there. And there was a way that she was doing the right thing. You know, she was honoring her father in the way that she wanted to do it. But in all of the little clips that were kind of surrounding this, you know, visual, there were these comments that were being made about her father and the fact that he never accepted her and saw her for who she really was. And she couldn't fully be herself outside of this context of being the daughter of an LDS around their faith. And I think that's a really deep conflict for her. I think I really feel like a lot of what her triggers are, are sort of centered around this hypocrisy of maybe the way a lot of members in her family hold family and faith and connection and what they say they're doing versus what they're really doing. And I think she's trying to sort of... My sense about her is she's really trying to reconcile who she is as a human being and that there's deep-rooted experiences growing up in that faith that maybe kind of kept her in some sort of a box. And so anytime somebody starts labeling her, she gets very incensed. She really wants to prove that she's good. Her goodness is constantly, she leads with that. And I think she is, you know, she really does have a conflict. And there's so much that she actually sees around how to be supportive and how to be in connection. And yet she just gets activated so quickly when she is not being seen as the good one. Yeah, it's kind of like as I heard you talking, it just suddenly felt so clear and simple to me. It's like, she, yes, she has been on this journey, which I want to say a compelling journey. And it's a journey that, you know, I feel supportive of her in and have compassion for her. But she's been on this journey, you know, towards individuation, claiming herself, separating herself from what she knew. And it's almost like even in the midst of that journey, she's still trying to find the magic key that will fit into the keyhole in such a way that she can have herself and she can individuate. And to your point, she can still be seen as good. That like her family or the system or the community or whoever it is, they're finally going to get it. And I just, I don't think she's given that up yet. And so in that place, I think that's where she gets activated. That's where the rage comes in. And I think it becomes this catch 22 because 
you know, part of what I hear you saying, I think this is what you're saying, and I agree, is that, I mean, yes, there is genuine goodness in her, you know, and that's why I think a lot of people find her likable. I mean, there are times where I find her likable. I liked her more this season than last season because she did feel realer to me this season. But I think where she gets herself into trouble is still... And I think this is so true of Whitney, which we've never even got. I, I feel like Whitney could have her own episode because I, I mean, I'll just leave that there. But I feel like what they have in common is they do their good deeds with conditions, you know, and the condition mm-hmm. is you have to see me. You have to see what I'm doing. Like you're saying, you have to see my goodness. And so it becomes so insidious because there's a demand attached mm-hmm. to it that's a disowned. And then in the place where the demand is disowned, when it's not met, there's something coming at you. Yes, that is quite vindictive and that is quite vicious. It dilutes the very goodness that she's wanting to be seen. And it just feels like, again, on the simplest, most fundamental level, like the invitation now for Heather is like, you have to give this up. Like you have to surrender. Mom's not getting it. Dad never got it. These relatives who didn't come to the service, they're never going to see you. You are going to be misunderstood. You are going to be labeled bad. Like, just surrender to that. Feel it. (laughs) Own the rage. Own the heartbreak. Own the disappointment. Own the deep pain of disconnection that's clearly there. And then move on with your life so that you can actually give from a place of just this is my genuine impulse to give and I'm not trying to prove anything to you and I'm not trying to get anything back from you. Well, you know, if you think about what the conditions are to participate in an organization or a church that hinges itself upon good deeds and good service and, you know, that you put the needs of others before your own, like everything that she was probably taught She's countering just by stepping out. It's kind of like to become individuated, she's going against everything that she was taught about what it means to be good. So I feel like that is the part that for her is the hardest, and you've named it, to feel, I think, intellectually, because she'll say, I get it. I'm never going to be accepted. I'm the black sheep. I'm the one. I'm taking the brunt. I think that's kind of her, it's almost like her badge. Like, you know, I think she gets something from being the martyred one, the one that has been singled out. And it's like almost a sense of pride for her. Like I was courageous enough. I feel like some of the energy actually comes from being the one that stands out like that, even though it deeply pains her. Well, do you also think, because what comes to me when you say that is, and it also in a way kind of keeps her in connection with you know the larger unit like there's there's energy there right whereas yeah if she gives up that badge it's sort of like then there's the empty space of just yeah they're not coming back around for me in some way no one's gonna see this no one's gonna recognize it somehow it just feels linked what comes to me is in this place where she does have this pride and i'm the black sheep somehow like baked into that also feels like the hope that they're gonna come round in some way like even in seeing that they're going to see her you know when you were talking about a disowned anger i also feel the disowned rejection she's rejected something she's rejected these teachings she's rejected 
where she came from. And it's almost as if she doesn't understand that the people that are rejecting her, and I'm doing this air quote, you know, like she's attached to the rejection of herself and not owning the place that she's impacting others in a way, in the same way that she, when she takes them out in the reunion, you know, like I'm all for this. I'm just here doing my thing. But the thing that she's doing is actually, I think, deeply painful for the other people that are steeped in their beliefs around what they're doing and talking about her family and maybe the people that can't see her act as being for herself what she needs but more against them i don't think she really i don't i don't think she really feels that i don't think she understands that well because it would require her to hold space for the bigger picture right where she's able to hold both her own struggle and the pain of her journey of this individuation process and then yeah holding the struggle of these people you know who are choosing to remain on the inside of a system and to your point you know may have their own feelings in response to her rejection and i think that is the difference right between being in the child's perspective versus the adult's perspective. You know, the little girl just, I want to be seen for what I'm doing and it's not fair. It's not fair. Like she's stomping her feet and saying that to the family and saying that to God. It's the adult who can step back and say, oh my God, there's a bigger picture here. There's a bigger system. There's a bigger system of religion. There's a bigger system of family and community. And yeah, like, doesn't this suck? And also, I mean, as Jamie, I want to say, you know, as Heather, maybe doesn't this suck? As Jamie, I want to say, isn't this also kind of like the beautiful, bittersweet pathos of this lifetime? Like, this is what we come here to do. It's like life is messy. And, you know, we're born into these families and in these systems and we have to navigate these complicated relationships and we love these people and we hate these people. But yeah, it requires a certain mature outlook to be able to kind of, I guess, drop out of blame and to instead hold that space for the bigger picture and just kind of, yeah, the bittersweet tragedy of these are severely limited relationships. And I love these people. And I think on a certain level, they probably love me. And yet our paths, they're divergent. And how sad is that? Yeah, exactly. And what are the conditions that allow us to stay in connection as opposed to being conditional upon whether or not I'm going to give you my love or give you my support or see you or make room for your feelings too before you see mine or feel mine. Because I often feel that in all the franchises, there's always this you know, place where it feels like a draw. You know, you have to do this before I'll do this. Yeah, like I won't see you until you see me. Which it's such a catch 22 because, you know, I feel like just even from a law of attraction perspective, it it works the opposite. It's like when I'm willing, well, I mean, there's a, there's actually two ways it can work. When I'm willing to see you, that's when I'll more likely have an experience of being seen because I'm giving what I want to receive. But there's also another version of it, which is when I'm willing to see myself. So I feel like if Heather were more willing to validate her own goodness her own good intentions but again this comes back to kind of the matured perspective i feel like if she could sit back look at the bigger picture see what's going on you know and i know this is easier said than done but stop taking it so personally drop into i'm doing what i need to do for myself and i'm totally aligned with that well then i don't have as deep a need for you on the outside to validate me 
And if I don't have that need, then yeah, I can hold space for you. I can hold space for me. And because now there's room and space, you're more likely to meet me halfway. But if I'm coming at you with this charged demand of what you've got to do for me, which by the way, you're never going to be able to do for me. Even if fucking Lisa Barlow sat on that stage and was like, Heather, I totally see you and how amazing you are and how your good intentions towards me this season. I mean, there might be some like immediate gratification for Heather in that place, but then she's going to have to go out looking for the next hit. Yeah. And I think that's it. It's like, there's a condition, there's a demand and all the way up until the point where you say, I can hold the larger picture, the one that sees both of our perspectives uh, that feels like the process that she's in. She's actually said so much of what you just said at the beginning of that statement. I see who I am. I know I'm good. You know, like I've I've heard, actually heard her sort of use these words. So theoretically, I think that she she's on her way. And I think maybe if this franchise, this participation that she agreed to with this, is helping her in some odd way see herself. You know, you, I don't know how these women cannot avoid seeing themselves played back like this. You know, I'm, I'm always so interested in these reunions because of what they see and then what they choose to talk about how incensed they are about what the other people did instead of like, Oh my God, I really saw what I was doing there. That's the part that I, I'm really interested in these women that participate in this show, like it's pretty rare where somebody really self-reflects and says, wow, I, I saw myself there. It's more like, oh yeah, I heard what you said behind closed doors. I'm never like, that's it. I mean, I don't want to get off topic, but that's one of the reasons why I've always appreciated Jennifer Aiden. I feel like she takes responsibility for I mean, she's maybe been slow to integrate all the lessons, but I feel like there are real moments where she really hears what other people are saying yeah but sticking with salt lake city so i'm curious in context of all of this the rage towards lisa barlow heather coming in and saying i thought you were going to have your hat in your hand i thought you were going to be contrite and then again i mean it's just so funny right literally she says but you were you know coming in talking about how you're this really good person which is just interesting to me given heather's investment in her being seen as good Like, what's going on with her and Lisa? What is she so triggered by at this point? What would it mean for her to leave for Lisa to come in with her hat in her hand saying, Yeah, I had this horrible moment towards Meredith and I'm so sorry. And I realize how I'm an awful person. Whatever it was she was imagining in her head that Lisa was going to do. What's her investment in this? Well, I think what she's looking for or needs to hear is Heather, you saw me. You saw me. Thanks for calling it out. There's deep hypocrisy. I think I'm better than other people, including you, and I'm not. I'm so sorry. I really think that what Heather needs to hear from Lisa Barlow, from her family, (laughs) from maybe, you know, the whole church is you see life in a way that has value. And I appreciate you. And I'm sorry that I was holding myself above you because I really feel like one of Heather's kind of Achilles is 
something to do with feeling like she's not less than, but treated as if she is. Well, and that gives, you know, extra rich dimension to what you were saying about this place in her that feels superior to the others. You know, that covert superiority that actually lives in her. If I'm her, I'm the one that's a little more evolved because I had the courage to see something, act on it, and step outside of it, take that risk, and Mm -hmm. I lost everything. But what I'm curious about, you know, what's so interesting is that Lisa and Heather, to my memory, were actually in an okay place at the end of the season, and they they had... exactly. It's almost like, unless I'm getting it wrong, my impression was Heather wanted Lisa to be humble in relationship to what had gone down with Meredith. And in particular, that hot mic moment. And so I guess that's what I'm wondering about is what's her investment in that particular situation and Lisa being humbled in that situation? I mean, again, it's reminding me of when Heather made that comment on the couch of like, I want to be in the ugly with you. So she thought Lisa was going to come in being in the ugly. I don't know. And then I'm just thinking about the moment where Heather said to her, you showed your true self, (laughs) which was just such a vicious thing to say. Because, I mean, look, we all have moments of rage and we all have moments of pettiness and cruelty. So the way, I mean, there was such a flavor of viciousness in Heather towards Lisa and the way that she went after and the way that she was using, it really was kind of like, it was this glee of like, you had this moment of weakness. It's actually what Lisa Barlow said. Like, there's that moment and now they're all using that. Which, you know, obviously Lisa's not perfect, but I think there's truth in that, right? It's like they got her. Like they got a vulnerable moment where the mask slipped. And it's like they're using that now to just completely vilify her. And I just feel this flavor of such deep cruelty. My intuition says that Lisa Barlow represents somebody in her family or a faction in her family. Really, I just have that sense that it's not, it's personal. It's definitely personal, but the vindictiveness, that that really sharp cruelty that you're talking about, I think it's bigger than Lisa. It's something younger, it's historical, really sort of electric charge that's there, that deep cruelty. It's not just about Lisa. Well, I, I agree. And I think this is why I always tend to feel worse for Lisa in the situation with Heather, because it's like just the intensity of the energy that's being thrown at her. I'm just like, that's a lot to put on someone. Yeah. Well, I think this is we could transition to Lisa here because I agree. I It's a little hard for me to feel my, <laughs> I have to say my deep, deep empathy for her because of the way Lisa defends herself is so... I think it's really triggering or activating for me personally. So I I kind of have this little... I'll take ownership of my cruelty, which is you're getting what you deserve, bitch. You know, like I, I, I just... I can feel that part of me and I, I want to say it so that I can let it go because deep down inside, she's a human being and... I think that she defends like she does because she's really deeply hurt and scared somewhere. We've talked about that before, I think, on a previous podcast. But yeah, I I think there was definitely a pile on there. But I think it was retribution on some level. Everybody kind of... She couldn't get away with what she usually does with that hot mic situation. 
She couldn't spin it because that's what she does, spin things all the time. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely her own worst enemy. As you know, I feel like you could say that about every housewife, right? That's what makes them such compelling characters. So we have spoken about this before. And it's always I always feel fear with Lisa. And I think that's why I tend to, you know, give her a little bit of extra grace because it's it's hard for me sometimes it's hard for especially like that scene where jen where she was gonna face off with jen in the bus and the way that she kind of puffed her chest up and took a stand and to me it just felt like someone who was so scared trying to you know put on airs and you know again i've said this before i just always feel underneath the go 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 attitude underneath the chaos it's just there's fear but you know what i want to say what was so interesting to me was seeing her go into pure defense mode and that moment where she kept talking and talking and then andy said to her wait lisa like i don't think what you're saying is landing with meredith and she was going so fast she didn't even understand what he was saying and she said no it is landing with me and then she kept going and to me, when I saw that moment, I was like, okay, this is answer Because I've had this question with Lisa. And I think I posed this in our last episode of in the place where she, you know, is talking outside of both sides of her mouth and she's defending herself and she's kind of greasing wheels. You know, I, I've really been wondering, and I wondered this about all of them, like Lisa Vanderpump, how conscious is she of what she's doing? And when I saw that moment of how fast she was going and that she wasn't even taking in what he was saying, and then she was just responding, I was like, oh, this really isn't. I don't think this is very conscious. I don't think she really has a deep understanding of what she's doing. And then the reaction she's provoking in other people, because yes, of course, it's frustrating. I Okay, this is why I feel bad for her, because I feel the bind. It's like she's not truly letting anything in. Right. Which, yes, that is frustrating for other people, especially when she's doing stuff. She's out there doing stuff. And then when people are trying to, like, talk to her about it and to be in relationship with her about it, she's not taking them in. And so, yes, I can feel the frustration of that. Now, where I feel the bind for her, though... And again, you know, I look at everything as pattern, you know, in our lives and that we're always sort of recreating patterns. So even this reunion, when I see this swarm of energy coming in at her and there is a force out there like Heather, that's kind of like, I'm going to take every single thing you say and pick it apart. I can feel that place in Lisa that and she even said this. She said, I'm not going to break here. You know, it's basically it's not safe for me to. It's like I can feel the bind where in her it's I can't afford to take anything in. I can't afford to take what you're saying in because if I do, I might break and be vulnerable. And this is not a safe space for me to be vulnerable. So I'm just trying to do what I need to do to survive. And you people are crucifying me for it. Now, again, there's a blind spot for her. I don't think she sees all of what she's doing when she's trying to survive. I don't think she sees how she shuts people out. I don't think she sees how she's trying to, you know, spin things. So she doesn't quite get why she's provoking such a reaction. And look, yes, there's a lot of disowned cruelty and judgment in Lisa, too. I mean, we've seen it. So I I think it comes from a different place. That's what I hear you saying. Can you specify? The disowned cruelty, it's like she's dissociated. She gets to a level of overwhelm where she loses touch with what she's even 
saying or doing so much so it's like being in a freeze response where I'm totally offline, but I'm still moving rather than just I'm stuck. It's like her fast paced moving is still operating in that pattern that you're speaking of, but she's not connected to it at all or feeling at all. Therefore, not feeling her impact, nor the impact others are having really on her because she's so animated and motivated by the adrenaline that's already overwhelmed her. Right. And that's the part. See, that's the piece where I have compassion for her because it just, again, to me, it just yeah, feels so scared. It feels like, yeah, well, like painful. Yeah. I'm just, I'm like grasping at straws. Like I'm, I'm keeping the wheels moving. Like I got, I just got to keep it moving. Like I, if I slow down, I die. And that's, In a circle. Like yeah. it's not even going anywhere. When I spoke to the cruelty, I mean, for me, what I'm thinking, I mean, this is going back to last season, like, I'll, I mean, and again, I think it's kind of funny, but, you know, I'll never forget what kind of kicked off the whole conflict on the show with Heather, which was Lisa telling some story about Heather being the girl at BYU who lifted up her shirt and was like, honor code, say what? You know, and Lisa just had this shit eating grin on her face. And it's like, yeah, I mean, look, Lisa, you can dress it up however you want. You clearly had your judgment about that and you were clearly enjoying the gossip you know and which is fine like again that's our humanity or whatever but to then kind of come back around and act like oh i don't judge you or i don't have judgments or i don't think i'm better than you i mean that's where i feel like there are some major blind spots but also as i say this i feel like probably a lot of this is also connected to the fear. It's like Lisa has had an investment. And I think this is where Heather and Lisa have a certain parallel. Lisa's had an investment in her own version of, uh, to me, it doesn't feel like being a good girl, but it feels like being an achiever, someone who has it together, being kind of perfect in a way, like, you know, being, yeah, the working wife and mom and mother who has it all and does it the way she wants to. And so I think that's where sort of judgment can come in because I think she certainly judges the parts of herself that she would maybe regard as weaker, more vulnerable that could get her into trouble. And so I'm sure there's a charge she gets out of feeling superior to others. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about like we've talked about character structures before when we've been analyzing housewives and you can't help but kind of think about the character structure of the rigid, you know, and why it is, it's so confronting type of defense. It's like once that cracks, there's a loss of identity. And I think that is so threatening in some way, like the way her defense gets pounded on the show, it kind of shows like how vulnerable what's beneath that, you know, that character defense of rigidity of holding something together and above others. Yeah. And I guess just to clarify, rigidity is typically associated with yeah overachieving, having it all together, being kind of the perfect person. And again, what you're speaking to, this is why I tend to have a soft spot for her because, um, you know, like I said, I just, I do, I always feel the fear that's underneath it. Yeah. Just something about the way this reunion went down. It just felt very metaphorical, like for her and her life. Like I've got to be on guard. Everyone's coming for me. 
And then, yeah, like to your point, she gets so disconnected that she starts saying the most ridiculous things, like going to Meredith on the sidelines and being like, well, I just, you know, you know, I heard you said something about my renovation. It's like, that's where she gets maddening because it's like, Lisa, you're not just stopping and taking in what is being said. And as Lisa, it's because it feels so dangerous to let things in. So what do I do here is Lisa, you know, (laughs) I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't. Exactly. I think it takes a lot of compassionate energy around you to be able to soften from that stance, you know, and that's not the environment that she's in, in this setting. There's people there that want to slam it in her face as opposed to allow her to, you know, sort of melt into another understanding of herself and actually a greater capacity because look, she's achieved a lot. If she could really take a deep look at what she's doing, I think there's a conviction in her, you know, I think there's a drive in her, tries to be loyal, you know, (laughs) like there's something that if it was aligned in another way, I think maybe aligned to those around her also, not just for her survival. I think she could actually even achieve a lot more like I don't even know if it's success, but pleasure, like deeper pleasure. I'd also add heart. I mean, I think she clearly has a lot of love. You feel how much she loves her family, how much she loves her children. You know, I mean, there's a lot of heart there. And I think, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about like her perhaps needing like a more compassionate context to soften because what I'm aware of and I don't know if it's weird to bring this in or not, but like, I'm just thinking about how she, you know, she heard our podcast from, you know, whatever last year and she reached out and, you know, in a way I really, it impressed me because I mean, I thought we were fair. It wasn't like all lovey lovey to Lisa. Like we definitely explored her and, and we're, you know, like today we're, you know, navigating different aspects of her and she was really receptive to it. And, you know, without going too much into detail, the exchange that we had, it was very touching to me because my experience of her in that, like, she was quite vulnerable. And it just kind of makes sense to me hearing what you're saying, because obviously, that framework and that con, she felt heard and she felt seen. And I know she did because she shared that. Like, she was like, you got it. Like, you got a lot of what was going on for me. So it's just actually what you're saying helps me to make more sense of all the different pieces because it's like, you know, I'm just putting together what I see on the show and then I'm putting together like my limited experience with her. And it's like, yeah, I think you're right. When she has that space on some level that she trusts is holding her in a more compassionate way and is willing to see her and hear her, something probably softens. But like somebody that wants something for her, that cares about her. Yeah. I have a feeling she's been competed with a lot. Maybe a lot of the interactions potentially that she's had have sort of met her drive with competition as opposed to wanting to celebrate her successes, you know, really getting behind her. And I agree with you. I definitely feel my compassion for her because, you know, I know people like that. And it's, I think it's really hard. It's lonely. And I think she could use some really meaningful friendships that are saying, I want to be in relationship with you in a way that I don't need something from you, but that I want to promote you. I want to celebrate you. Yeah. I mean, that feels really right when you say that. And then kind of what flashed to me was almost this voice of like, kind of almost feeling set up. Like, like you're the ones kind of gave me this messaging to go out there and achieve. 
and now I've done it. And now you're like holding it against me in some way. Making me a bitch for this. Yeah. And what's interesting is I'm really getting something around. Like when you started talking about competition, like for me, it really came in as competition amongst women. Exactly. Especially because she's very warm with John. I mean, and her, you know, she has all boys yeah. in her family. I, you know, I just, I just kind of feel her relationship with women has, yeah, it's fraught with a lot of complication. And I genuinely, I want for her meaningful relationships that actually want to know her better, you know, to help her know herself better, not to tell her what she's doing wrong necessarily, you know, not to lead with judgment, but to actually help her let down this pace, this this frenetic, constant moving, but come and hang out. Let's have fun. Let's relax. Who are you behind all that? Well, that's what I was going to say. And like, hopefully within that safety that she could then do her part by intentionally, consciously learning how to slow down in relationship and take in what someone else is saying, in particular, when someone has an issue, you know, I mean, like to really let herself feel her impact without needing to fix it or even make herself wrong or to perceive it as an attack, which is really just another way of saying what you're saying, which is to get into real relationship with people. It's probably, yeah, it's probably part of why there is such a steadfast connection with John, because I imagine it's sort of the one person where she feels a safety to like drop into something that's less guarded and frenetic. I know you have a hard out this evening. So should we just, you know, touch on, isn't it so, see, this is what's so interesting. I can feel the possibility of where the hour would be up and we wouldn't even get to Jen Shaw, which I think is so interesting given the, like, that's what this season feels like. Everyone is just tiptoeing around Jen Shaw. And actually, okay. What the fuck is going on with Jen Shaw? (laughs) If I trust this energy, though, as like information, kind of the flavor for me, like in the place where I could see this whole episode going without talking about Jen Shaw, like there's almost this this flavor of, oh, God, like this feels like too too much. I don't even want to go near this. Like, how do we even start to unpack this? But I do want to go near it. And I <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. And I'm curious of just your initial hits. But for me, it's just just the tiptoeing around. And let me just sort of say something very clearly. Yes, I believe in innocent and proven guilty in terms of like due process and in terms of the court of law. And I believe Jen Shah has a right to a fair trial. And I believe when it comes to court, she is innocent until proven guilty. And yeah, go get your representation. And, you know, we have a way things are set up in this country that, you know, Jen should have every advantage of. That said, for me, <laughs> you know, I'm still allowed to have my personal opinion based on what's in front of me. And it's quite clear to me, Jen Shaw is not innocent. You know, I mean, look, even if you want to give her some grace that maybe, ah, who knows, clearly where there's smoke, there's fire. And so anyways, it's just... These women tiptoeing around what she's done or like what's going on with her. And then that combined with the vitriol that they're going towards Lisa of all people. We've got like an indicted criminal on one couch and I'll even bring in Mary. I mean, not that I'm condoning whatever's going on with Mary in her church, which again, doesn't seem 
<laughs> it doesn't seem like the greatest, but it's just interesting to me that there was this kind of like intensity towards Lisa, intensity towards Mary. And meanwhile, Jen Shaw is just sitting on the corner of the couch, sitting pretty, being kind of energetically protected by this group. And it's, yeah, I love that statement, energetic protection, because it definitely feels like protection. And I wanted to ask you this, are they protecting her? Or are they protecting themselves from her? Like, she feels like when you talk about the tiptoeing around the hornet's nest, it's like where there's smoke, there's fire. It's almost like talked about this last time, it feels so dark. And I think that it's hard not to see her position that she's in right now and the way she's playing it out. Like I think Andy in the reunion when they were, I think it was the first episode and she had to like take off her glove, you know, like the way she was dressed out got noted. I think it was like, I expected you to come in a little humbler or something like that, you know? And it's like, it's almost like this character that is so above the accusations or separate from them in the same way Lisa separates from... Because we talked about this before. I think when we talked about Jen and Lisa um, in the first season, sort of mirroring each other also, like there's some way and I, I can feel it there. It's almost like, I don't know if Jen knows that she's done something that's warranted this <laughs> accusation, this indictment. It's almost as if she really believes that she has not done I I like I'm so committed to believing that this is not about me the way it feels it's like I'm just going to keep acting as if I don't feel her behaving any any more talk about having your hat in your hand there was nothing in there that in this reunion that made me feel like she has concern yeah no I've felt that way the whole season like it's almost like a disassociative state you know and that's kind of why i almost when she just unleashed on lisa in that bus or the sprinter van i guess is what it's called to me that really felt like oh here it is this is all the pent-up energy that she's not letting through it's almost fascinating to me like i i want to get in there and understand it more because obviously you know part of what i read in the articles is like you know she and stuart we're sending encrypted messages, you know what I mean, through secret software, you know, where things can't be traced. So it's like, there's a level of consciousness where she knew what she was doing, right? But it's like, now in the wake of being caught in these indictments, she is like committing to this narrative. And I said this on our last episode, it's like, it's not even like this other person I knew where she's coming up with some sort of plot i mean whitney even tried to help her whitney at one point was kind of like well i could see how maybe there's a gray area where you don't know what you're doing but jen's not even doing that she's like not only am i innocent i'm persecuted and i'm gonna fight for everyone else out there who can't fight and she's committing so wholeheartedly to this that it just it really feels like there's some sort of true split there where she is committing so wholeheartedly to this narrative that she's created and she will not give it up. And it's almost like she won't even let herself know anything different. And it's so dangerous too, because she's using real places where people of color are being persecuted for really a racial 
motivation as opposed to something they've actually done. And she's using that defense also. And to me, that feels really dangerous. I don't know if she actually believes it. The sense of danger when you ask the question, like, why are these women tiptoeing around this? Why is this almost like we leave five minutes for this conversation at the end? Like, (laughs) what is it about this energy? And it's like, it has something really twisted in it. Well, yeah. I mean, I just like even the fact that, again, I mean, this is my take on it, but everyone on that stage, I think, knows Jen sent those text messages and everyone's sort of acting like, well, we don't really know and maybe she didn't really do it. I mean, it was kind of funny to hear the roses are red, violets are blue one, like just read out loud on the stage. But like, that is, I mean, when you take it off the spectacle, the Real Housewives stage, it's it's completely twisted to be like getting burner phones and sending people like, you know, twisted nursery rhyme threatening text messages. I mean, it is unhinged. What I'm curious about, and I, I actually am curious on your take on this because I, I feel like we've had kind of a similar trajectory. What's been fascinating to me is so you and I both had a soft spot for Jen last season, right? Because there were things. I still do, to be honest. Well, even, even in the middle of this, I do. Well, this is kind of what I want to speak to because it was interesting, right? Because in that season, like most people really didn't like her and they thought she was problematic for all these sorts of different reasons. What's so interesting to me is this season. I've like really watching herself victimize herself in relationship to what's happening has really sort of turned me off from her. And, you know, to the conversation we're having today, like I just feel something that's just so much more, I guess, twisted and darker. But what's happening in the audience for a lot of people, it's kind of like the audience is, is, <laughs> is sort of like energetically aligning with the cast of the housewives where a lot of people are saying, I actually find her charming and likable this season. I'm just curious. I don't know. What do you make of that? Because I feel so inverted where I used to like her and now I don't. But public opinion used to not like her and now they do. They're seeing something charming in her now, whereas I saw something charming in her last year. I I don't know what to make of this. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts. Well, I actually didn't know that people were finding her charming. A lot. I mean, even Tamara. So my guilty, I think I've told you my guilty pleasure. I I listen to Tamara and Teddy Mellencamp's podcast. Even them, they're like, I got to admit, I find her really charming. Like, I really like her. Hmm. Well, I hate to keep bringing in character structures, but for some reason, they're like, so right here. She's seductive. She has a seductive psychopathy. If you feel that defense, again, it's like, there's a way I'm going to find out what it is that's going to ingratiate you to me and i'm going to i'm going to play that but damn if you cross me i'm playing to win and i will take you down at all costs so my feeling is maybe people are seeing the politician in her yeah like like almost like she's gotten into this deep shit and it's she knows now she needs to kind of like modulate things i mean even before she got arrested. She sort of came into the season, you know, on the apology tour. Clearly, she'd seen herself deprecating. Yeah, she had seen herself last season. And then this shit hits the fan. And you think that perhaps there's a way that she's like maneuvering within the world of the show to make herself more likable in light of everything that's happening. And I, I have a feeling she's savvy enough to know, which is probably why she's in this kind of trouble 
what people need to hear and the way it needs to come across. I think she loses sight of that, like on the flip side, right? Like when we were more ingratiated to her, kind of more of a realness. This is what I'll say. I think she feels far less vulnerable this season than she did the first season. So for me, that says she's performing. She's doing something here that she knows she has her finger on the pulse of either what the fans want from her, what they, you know, what they respond to. And she's playing that up because I actually didn't know that people were feeling that way. I actually thought people were appalled by (laughs) this indictment. No, there's a large faction of people saying I kind of like her this season. You know, it's when she says things like, well, I think all religions are like cults. You know, like she kind of, you know, she's saying things that are, you know, if it were coming out of anyone else's mouth. You'd be like, oh, yeah, I really like that person. And I think people are saying, oh, I like that person, you know, and and she that's the thing. She is charming and she is fun. I mean, that's what I liked about her. I mean, yeah, I liked her messiness last season, but I remember feeling like, oh, she's fun. Like, I would rather be at whatever that was, like a salsa lesson with Jen and her husband than like at a freaking, you know, whatever whatever Meredith was doing or whatever Heather was doing. Like, I just felt like Jen, she was spicy, you know, so I liked that about her. And she's protected. I think that I think she really is protected. And it, what what I found interesting, this is what I'll say. I really felt like it was almost like there was a competition among the housewives, the uh, the other cast members, who is Jen going to see as the most supportive? Because it was like Jen, if you didn't call quick enough, you know, the whole Lisa Barlow thing, it was like she really pointed out the people that weren't there for her. And garnered so much pity. And everybody I felt was like, oh, I'm here for you in this way, or I'm here, we we've got your back. And I'm like, at that's the part that was super confusing to me after the way that she went after all of them at some point. That's what I was gonna say. It's like as you were talking, I just kept hearing something about politics of the show, politics of the show, politics of the show. I mean, I feel like Lisa, the way that Heather has shown up for Jen the whole season was kind of like as a covert F you to Lisa, <laughs> kind of like I'm a real friend. And I just wonder in the place where Whitney and Heather did seem so obsessed with Lisa for the entire season, you know, is a lot of this just about we're the real friends. We're showing up in the real way. It's just so bizarre because it's all based on this. I was going to say it's based on this fiction of like Jen's innocence, but is it even really? Because I feel like a lot of what I've heard from Heather and Whitney is kind of like, look, essentially like she is who she is. She's our friend. So we're just going to support her regardless. Exactly. They're not touting her innocence. They're saying I'm supporting her no matter what happens. But it's just so strange. It's like, it's almost like could be an example of like that bigger picture maturity we were talking about earlier of like, Hey, I'm not going to assign blame. Like I'm going to hold the bigger picture. She, she's someone I care about. Life's complex. Like, you know, I'm going to be here for her in this process, except that it doesn't actually feel that way. It still feels like it has an agenda. What's the agenda? Drop in, Jamie. What is the agenda? Because this is my interest right here. What do they gain by doing this? I mean, it's hard because it's like, am I doing Heather or Whitney or just both of them? It's like... Stay with Heather. With Heather, it just feels like I'm going to be seen for how good I am. I mean, it's just exactly what we're talking about. It's like, this is truly where I will get the valid. I'm so good that you, you were awful to me, which by the way, we heard her say this. You were awful to me and I'm still showing up for you. This is kind of like fail-proof 
situation. Again, you know, it's funny. I've felt it as a fuck you to Lisa, but it also, in terms of our larger conversation, it kind of feels like a fuck you to everyone who's ever doubted her goodness. It's like, this is how fucking good I am. This is how good of a friend I am. This is how good I am. And what I hear, and this is how you do it, people. This is what a true friend does. Pay attention because that is what I needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to give you everything I didn't get. Exactly. And, oh, okay. Because because then I was thinking, but like, you know, what's the difference between her and Lisa? Like, because she's vicious towards Lisa, right? But she's going to prove something with Jen. But it's like, to your point, she can covertly feel better than Jen. Exactly. Jen's the charity case. Exactly. So she's kind of using her. I mean, we were already saying that, but it's a different flavor of using. It's like there's using her to prove a point, but then there's using her to like, yeah, I feel better about myself. I'm the superior one in this situation. And there's also, in my perspective, a using of what's happening in these other storylines to get it off of Jen. Right. It kind of contextualizes the way they were going after Meredith. It's like, we've got Jen to the end. Hey, everyone. Sorry for this abrupt interruption, but we actually had a little bit of a technical difficulty and the last couple minutes of the recording got lost in the shuffle. So I'm just going to summarize our final points here. Um, and then by way of an apology for the technical difficulty, I'm going to throw in a little bit of a solo love is blind bonus at the end of this for all of my fellow love is blind watchers. But yeah, just to wrap up the Salt Lake City part of things, basically what we were saying was that Heather and Whitney's deep desire to have Jen's back through thick and through thin to the very end is such a prime and clear cut example of how destructive we can get when we try to be nice or good from a place of having a demand of being seen as nice or good. So in this case, if we kind of run with the working theory that Piper and I came up with that a lot of Heather and Whitney's investment in sticking by Jen's side is to show how good they are, to show what it looks like to be a good friend. Part of that was having Jen's back to the very end. And Piper was saying part of that meant having Jen's back at the expense of some of the other women and what was going on in their lives. And what we started talking about was the way that they spearheaded that inquiry into Meredith's father's memorial and whether she was lying about that. Because the whole question of Meredith's father's memorial, I guess, was playing into Jen's ridiculous narrative or question of whether Meredith had something to do with like calling the feds on her. And so in their quest to be good friends to Jen, Heather and Whitney really took up that mantle and they really ran with it. And I was saying at the end of the episode, just how distasteful I really found that whole storyline to be that, and this is, this is coming from someone who's not a big Meredith fan at all. I'm not like, uh, you know, a passionate Meredith defender, but I have to say watching the women attempt to make her answer for her father's memorial, it really felt quite ugly. It felt really distasteful. It just, it just felt really below the belt. It just felt clear that, um, 
you know, something really real was going on for Meredith and that she was in a state of actual mourning and actual grieving. And it also felt clear that Jen's hypothesis that Meredith had something to do with her arrest was just so absurd. So for Heather and Whitney to kind of run with this narrative out of allegiance to Jen, like I said, it just serves as such a visible example of how that kind of faux loyalty or niceness or goodness turns into something really nasty and and kind of ugly. And it was interesting, too, because it didn't just involve Meredith. You know, part of it was also implicating Lisa and implying that Lisa was purposely spreading misinformation after her phone call to Meredith on the Sprinter van. And to me, it just felt really obvious that there was a misunderstanding. I mean, Lisa called Meredith and based on the conversation we saw, it was clear that Lisa misunderstood and thought Meredith was in the memorial with her family at that moment. And I don't, I don't think as much as like Lisa stirred stuff up and was talking out of both sides of her mouth this season, I don't think there was any intention on her part to like, you know, t- to muddy the waters or to frame Meredith. I felt like that whole storyline was completely Heather and Whitney's invention. And like I said, it's just such a clear cut example of what can end up happening when you just go too far for the sake of trying to run with something because you think on the other side of it, you're going to be seen or validated as good in some way. If they didn't need to be seen or validated as good, perhaps they wouldn't have been riding so hard for Jen and perhaps they wouldn't have called into question Meredith's father's memorial. And then Piper's final point in all of that was that even at the reunion, having watched the whole season back, neither Heather nor Whitney really took responsibility for what they did around the father's memorial. They still were were kind of like putting it back on Meredith and saying, well, why didn't you just tell us the date? Why didn't you just do that? They were trying to make it seem like it, it actually was Meredith's fault rather than just taking simple responsibility for the fact of like, we kind of got overzealous and we did something that was really insensitive to you in a time that was quite painful for you. Okay, guys, so that wraps up the Salt Lake City portion of things. I hope you enjoyed it. And what I'm going to do now is include a first part of a planned solo episode that I started to record, but then never finished. And so, yeah, I was going to do a solo episode about Love is Blind going deep into Natalie and Shane. And um, I recorded the first part of it, but life and work got in the way and so I never finished it. So I have here the first 10 minutes of it of dropping into Shane and Natalie at the start of their relationship once they get to Mexico. So again, for any of you who watch the show, please enjoy this little bonus Easter egg and once again, accept my sincere and humble apologies for the technical difficulties on this episode. So without any further ado, here is my Love is Blind nugget, and I'll be back at the end of it to wish you all a proper goodbye. So I started to watch Love is Blind this past weekend, and um, while I was watching it, I just threw up a couple Instagram stories about it, and truly, I was not prepared for the wealth of responses that I would get back. I went to bed and By the time I turned my phone on the next morning, I had close to 20 DMs from people enthusiastically engaging with me about Love is Blind. So 
the message came through loud and clear. The people want their Love is Blind content. Um, I haven't finished the series yet. I'm halfway through. I've watched five episodes. But I thought today, since I was planning on doing a solo episode, I thought we could just choose one of the couples and take this opportunity to go a little bit deeper into them. And I thought we would start with Shane and Natalie, mostly just because I feel like there's so much going on subtextually. I mean, again, I haven't finished the series, so I don't know what ends up coming out to the surface or if anything ends up coming out to the surface. But what I know so far is their whole relationship is just rife with subtext and it just starts immediately. I mean, the second they have their first scene on that balcony in Mexico on their hotel room, I mean, things go left so quickly. And on the surface of it, they're acting like it's a banter. They're acting like it's jokes. It's back and forth about the champagne. But by the end of it, Natalie is literally saying to Shane, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> I mean, she literally says, you're a piece of shit. And it clearly upsets him. So this is just a prime example of a situation where there is a whole world of stuff that's being left unsaid. And it just felt like prime opportunity to just sort of slow the whole thing down, drop into Shane, drop into Natalie, and see if we can maybe get our fingers on the pulse of what is really going on here at least to start. So on that note, I'm sitting here. I've actually got the scene pulled up on my laptop and I'm just going to kind of go through it beat by beat and I'm going to intuitively explore and see what wants to come up. Having said that, I'm just going to actually start with Shane and I just thought I'd drop into Shane just towards Natalie at the start of this adventure. Like they're sitting there, she's sitting across from him, where is Shane energetically in relationship to this woman who has accepted his proposal of marriage as they start this next leg of their journey? So this is going to be Shane towards Natalie. Uh, it, it just, it immediately just feels like this whirlwind of energy. It, it feels like this little boy who's just like, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. Meaning like, gotta get this going, gotta get this going. We gotta, we gotta get it going. It feels like as Shane, I'm just caught. I, not just that I'm caught up in a whirlwind. I am the whirlwind and I just want to catch Natalie in my whirlwind and like whisk her away. And there's no real regard here for how the whirlwind is going to impact her, whether she wants to say yes to the whirlwind. It's pretty much like, I'm the whirlwind. I want to get going. Let's go. And the other words I just keep hearing as I take Natalie, and it's kind of like, mine, 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 mine. Like, it's mine. You're mine. It's mine. Let's go. Now, 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 now. And as Shane, it's almost like what I want to do is it's almost like the image I have is grabbing Natalie, squeezing her close to my chest and just completely enveloping her and energetically smothering her. And I now the words I'm hearing are just, I want what I want and I want it now. I want what I want and I want it now. I want what I want and I want it now. He He feels like this kid who's <laughs> he's got his hands in the cookie jar and he just wants to fucking eat all those cookies and not just eat those cookies he wants to like scoop every single cookie up cram it into his mouth and just chomp on them all at once and it's almost like i want this before anyone can take it from me i want to eat all the cookies before an adult can come in and say wait a minute shane you're not supposed to have all those cookies this is these are my cookies and i want to eat them now so there's definitely like a demand here you know and there's almost like um yeah, it's kind of like an underground anxiety 
around what it would mean if something or someone were to come in as an opposing voice and say, wait a second, Shane, you don't just get to take the ball and run with it. You don't just get to be the cyclone that sweeps through the room and does what it wants to do. And as Shane, like, I mean, it really feels like I want to be the cyclone that does what it wants to do. I want to blow through this hotel room. I want to knock over Natalie. And then I want to be able to go do whatever else I want to do. And then I want to be able to come back and knock over Natalie again. And then I want to be able to go do whatever else I want to do. It's just like, I just want to be this unstoppable force that never gets stopped. And no one better try to get in my way. Because if someone tries to get in my way, I'm going to be pissed. So there's kind of like an entitlement here. And like I said, kind of a fear that if I'm somehow not this wild, unstoppable force, yes, something's going to come in and prevent me from getting what I want. And I can feel a shame in that place where something might come in and prevent me from getting what I want. I'm pissed. I want what I want and I want it now. Nobody better get in my way. And I can feel like in this place when I'm looking at Natalie, I don't care about the impact this has on her. It's like a shame. It's not even crossing my mind that she's having her own experience And it's something that I somehow need to take into account or in any way feel responsible for or be concerned about my impact on her experience. It's just I want what I want and I want it now. So now if I kind of switch over to Natalie, I'm just going to sort of take Shane in, you know, as they're sitting there again at the start of this journey. So I'm Natalie. This is Natalie towards Shane. (sighs) Wow. Okay. (laughs) I just want to say, like, immediately as Natalie, like, my guard is up. And I want to say, like, what's coming to me is, like, we're out of the pods now. You know, the pods were a safe experiment where there was a certain framework where I had the safety and permission to drop in, let go, be more vulnerable. But we are out of the pods now. And we're in the quote-unquote real world. And as Natalie, I can just feel... I am so on guard. I'm like frozen. And what this feels like to me is like, I, I don't I don't trust you, Shane. I don't trust men. I do not trust men as far as I can throw them. And I'm on watch. Like, that's what it feels like. You guys can't see me at home, but my eyes as Natalie are darting back and forth. It's like, I'm staying very still. I'm not making a big scene. I'm very controlled. I'm very composed. I'm very put together. You're not going to see me freaking out or spazzing out because even that would be some measure of vulnerability. It would be some measure of losing control. And I want to almost say like, I don't know, somehow giving you the upper hand. You're not going to see that. I'm going to stay very still and composed. I'm going to stay in control. My eyes are going to be watching and I don't trust you. You have to earn my trust. And I almost kind of feel as Natalie, it's like, (laughs) I do feel this energy of like, I'm going to, I'm going to put you to the test. Like, I'm going to test you. I'm going to see what you're made of. You want to marry me? I'm going to see what you're made of. Yeah, I really feel as Natalie, this experience of, I I am not dropping my guard and I'm not dropping my defenses because that that is where the trouble can happen. When my defenses drop, that is where danger can occur. That's where danger has occurred. So no way am I letting my guard drop. And it's, it's interesting. I actually feel an energetic connection in a weird way between their two different experiences with Shane. It's like, he wants to be the ravenous cyclone because he's scared 
if he slows down at all, something's going to come in to prevent him from getting what he wants. Similarly, with Natalie, it's that same feeling of like, rather than being a cyclone, it's like they're the inverse of one another. Shane's sort of wild and all over the place and wants to dominate the room in order to get what he wants. With Natalie, it's I'm not going to give in to anything that looks like wildness or chaos. I'm not going to be out of control. I'm not going to drop my guard because I feel like the second I drop my guard, that's where something can come in and like, I want to say like, take advantage of me, run over me, right? So it's interesting she's with a guy like Shane who actually on some energetic level does want to run her over. That's where it can happen. So we've got these two people right out of the gate who have very different styles, but are both coming from a place of There's a sort of control I'm exerting because I'm scared if I don't exert this control, something's going to come in that I don't like. So on the one hand, it's chaos over here. On the other hand, it's like tightly wound, defenses up, complete composure. You're not getting anything out of me. So that's kind of the lay of the land, like right before anything starts. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, follow me on Instagram if you don't already, Jamie Stein, J-A-M-I-E-S-T-E-I-N. And if you're interested in my work, you can go to my website, hollywoodreadings.com to read more about it, and you can send me an email there. All right, see you on the flip side. Bye. Bye.